0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. I'm today kind of a teaser for what's to come. Uh, the book of Isaiah records Isaiah's prophecies during three different kings of Judah. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, whose names I will always remember because of Matthew's Begats. Uh, The song based on Matthew's genealogy of the Messiah, that's part of the Behold the Lamb program. That was last year's Christmas program and is a tour that Andrew Peterson leads for the last 18 years. So Matthew's Begats, I'll always remember Matthew's recording of Jesus' genealogy. And there's such irony in Jesus' lineage because... These three were all pretty terrible rulers, all ultimately contributing to Judah being conquered by Babylon. And then the kingly line of David just dissipating, such that it seemed that there would never be a king like David. Isaiah is heavily quoted in the New Testament, uh, 83 times by some counts. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah eight times. The most significant one may be the text that Jesus reads in his hometown of Nazareth, As he begins his ministry, as he quotes, as he takes the scroll and stands before the people in that synagogue, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The book of Isaiah is all about the Messiah. In three different parts, different sections, Isaiah gives us three big picture views of the coming Messiah in light of the coming judgment on God's people. So Isaiah is a prophet speaking God's words to the people of God and especially to the rulers of God's people. Unfortunately, people don't always listen to what God has to say, do they? This human tendency is highlighted by the choices that these kings make. Through Isaiah's teaching. And we have the historical accounts of Kings and Chronicles that kind of show us the full picture of what's going on. And Ben McGuire actually read from this text as well last week as we considered the candle of hope. The fullness of this picture of the Messiah in this text is our sure and certain hope. At the right time, God sent his son through a miraculous birth, to fulfill the law of God and to fulfill the prophets. So each week of Advent helps us remember a particular theme. And last week was hope. So Brad preached that even in the pit of despair, God is able and indeed does work all things for his glory and our good. There's hope as we see perfectly pictured in the fulfilled hopes of the first advent, and as we see perfectly anticipated in the second advent, the hope we have for Jesus' return. So this week's theme, as we've seen, is peace. And peace is a prominent theme throughout Scripture, especially peace as it's understood in Hebrew, the word shalom. So say that with me, shalom. Shalom. Even the way the word sounds kind of brings a measure of peace to the temperament of the speaker. And we'll explore more of the importance of this word in just a few moments. As you may have picked up just a few minutes ago, these names of the the Messiah and Isaiah's prophecy are quite a bit more than nicknames, but a little bit like it. They're, They're facets of the power and character of the Messiah. So wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, prince of peace. Each name tells us something about who the Messiah is, or for the original hearers, who the Messiah would be. And it takes all of these names, plus many, many more throughout the Old Testament, to properly attempt to name the Messiah. So for example, my granddaddy was an amazing man. He passed away three years ago, and one of the things that my Uncle John said during his eulogy, he pointed out that my granddaddy had a lot of names. He was James Ursel Stevenson, born here in Anger, in the Willow Springs part. And so I don't know where Ursel came from, but there it is. So some people called him James. Usually people that were looking for something, sending him mail. Just like sometimes people call Pastor Brad Carl, or they call Scott Colbert Anthony, Uh they have those other names. But usually there's people who don't know him, right? But my granddaddy was James, but he was also more commonly called Ursel. That's what people called him. And sometimes they called him Urk, which was short for Ursel. It was his nickname. And he was also given the nickname Steve from, from Stevenson, presumably, his last name. And then he was also Daddy to his son and his three daughters. He was granddaddy to seven of his grandkids and buddy to the other three grandkids. And it takes all of those names to describe my granddaddy. James Ursel, Stevenson, Irk, Steve, Daddy, Granddaddy, Buddy, and the fullness of what each name brings. And then you get a slight glimpse of who he was and how he lived. It takes all of the names here in Isaiah, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, God with us, Suffering Servant, and then the rest of the Bible, Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, Root of Jesse, Lion of Judah, Lamb of God, Yeshua, Jesus, which means Yahweh saved. All of those names give us a facet of the beauty of the perfect, holy Son of God, the Father. But even taken all together, they're only a glimpse of who he is and how he lived and what he'll be like when we live with him forever. So let's look a little bit more closely at our text for a bit. If you'll turn in your Bible or tap in your device to Isaiah chapter 9. This section in in chapter nine specifically is the climax of a section that began in chapter seven. We also find a prophecy of the Messiah that's quoted a lot at this time of year. And the virgin shall deliver a child and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. But this specific section here in chapter nine is an oracle of Isaiah that's shaped by what the Lord does, what the people of God enjoy and then the so what the implications of that this first verse is translated into english in the past tense or past perfect tense the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light but this is actually a hebrew way of communicating the certainty of god's words so it's not quite as simplistic as saying god said it i believe it that settles it but it's pretty similar So God said the people will see a great light, and so the prophet then records that the people have seen a great light. It's forward-looking, predictive prophecy, but the prophet is so certain of God's word that he wants the people hearing to share that hope. God said it. It's gonna happen. Might as well say it happened. It's like saying the Panthers will win today by saying the Panthers have won If only, right? As I mentioned previously, all of Isaiah is pointing towards the Messiah. Glimpses of the one who is to come are built into every part of this book. And each part of this prophecy in particular alludes to Jesus specifically, the one who perfectly fulfills every messianic prophecy. So in our first verse, the Messiah is described as a great light. So remember Or maybe thumb in your Bible or tap on your device or make a note of John 8. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To be sure, hearers of Jesus' words in John would remember what Isaiah has said. Consider... Further in verse three, it continues to describe the reaction of the people as the work of God is described. Because God has multiplied, God has increased joy. So recall John fifteen, where Jesus speaks of the vine, and then he says that he said all these things so that his joy would be in us, that our joy would be full. And then in verse four, God has broken the power of the oppressor. And so the oppressor is described in terms that would immediately remind the people of Israel and Judah, the first hearers of this prophecy of the Exodus, God's triumph over the enemies of God's people, the important annual remembrance of God's liberated children. Because before we had the birth of Jesus to celebrate, before we had Easter, the resurrection to celebrate, God's people had Passover. The pivotal moment of the Passover story is the obedience of God's people to cover their doorposts in the blood of a lamb, that God's judgment would pass them over. So Jesus, the Messiah, is the lamb of God whose blood causes God's judgment to pass right over us. And then verse five is this picture of military imagery, the boots and the garments rolled in blood because of what God has done the military victory that he has accomplished, the people can then enter into the fruits of victory, a victory they did not win. And that's why Midian is referred to here because that's reminding them of God's provision to Gideon. So remember the story of Gideon. Most of you probably have a flannel graph picture in your mind when I say that. But the story of Gideon, Gideon didn't do anything worth doing. God did all of that for him. God delivered the victory to him. So just the mention of the word Midian would recall all of that back to those who are hearing this prophecy. It's the Lord of hosts who won the victory over the enemy. And this verse in some ways to me was reminiscent of the vision that John has in Revelation. God will have his victory as the Messiah ultimately conquers every enemy. God is won Through the Messiah. But now, both now and in what is to come. So the victory, again, look at the way this is phrased. The victory is so sure that the prophet can use verbs in the past tense. The rod and the staff of the enemy have been broken. But then by what way did the Lord's people enter a salvation they don't earn? How does God prepare the way for his people? By the mere fact of a king's birth. Here in verse 6, the emphasis rests not on to us, but a child is born. So our American tendency is to read this, to us a child is born. But the text would actually read, for to us a child is born. Not just any child, but a son who has the full rights and inheritance of the father. And then this important phrase, the government shall be upon his shoulder. This has multiple meanings. One of them is a sign of rank is worn on the shoulder. So he'll bear the rank above any other rank on his shoulder. There's also a more kind of literal metaphor of that, that the Messiah will physically bear the weight of government. Rather than the yoke or staff of the oppressor's government or the failed governing of the kings of Israel and Judah, the Messiah will bear the government ruling in perfect justice. And then, as the church father Justin Martyr reminds the Christians of the second century and us, Jesus carried the cross on his shoulder. Jesus' obedience to death on a cross is the reason why God has exalted him, given him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue would confess, every knee would bow, everyone would realize that he is Lord of lords, ruler of rulers, because he has borne the cross on his shoulder. He is worthy to sustain the government on his shoulder. And his name shall be called these names are all the essential characteristics of the Messiah. It's one way to look at it. He's literally a wonder of a counselor, one with unfailing wisdom. He's the mighty God moving in the power of the very power of God himself to accomplish victory. He is the everlasting father who will care for his subjects, his children forever. And he's the prince of peace, who will administer peace to the entire kingdom, which ultimately is all of creation. One commentator, Meyer, describes that the perfection of this king, the Messiah, is seen in his qualification for ruling, his person and power, his relationship to his subjects, and the society his rule creates. If you want to think about qualifications for a legit ruler, this is it. The perfection of this king is seen in the fact that he is a wonderful counselor. He's qualified to rule in wisdom. He has the mighty power of God in his person. He is related to his subjects as a father is to their children. And his society, the society is created from his rule, is one that's characterized by peace and perfect justice. So, what beautiful names for our Messiah! What comforting truths. About our God, the Father who would send his Son to be this Messiah and then leave the Spirit to continue the work until the Messiah's return. So, the rule that the Prince of Peace creates, it will continue to increase until all of creation recognizes him. So, this Davidic connection that's here in this next verse reminds us of several things. So, remember that God prom- promised that the Messiah would be of David's line, right? But literally, no one other than Solomon, had sat on the actual throne of David because the kingdom fell apart on Solomon's death. So the people of God had already been longing for somebody to sit on that actual throne for a while. So when Isaiah gives this prophecy about the government and peace, there are two kingdoms, a divided nation of people who, they're family, like they're literally family and they don't even recognize each other's authority. All of the people of Israel and Judah longed for A king who would be like a new Solomon, a wise counselor. Remember what Solomon is known for, his wisdom. And the name Solomon is actually derived from Shalom, man of peace. So the people of God longed for a true man of peace, for David's perfect heir to come and rule. And Isaiah confirms that this prince of peace will rule with justice and righteousness forever and ever. And the people, they can't make this happen. The people of God cannot conjure this king. The zeal and passion of the Lord of hosts, the zeal and passion of the triune God does this. And so the peace of God is ours through this Messiah who will be the prince or administrator of peace. But what does peace mean? What is, what is shalom? Say it with me again, shalom. So our kids had a couple close answers to what we generally think of when we think of peace. When we think of peace generally, we think of cessation of fighting. Uh, We may think of peace and quiet. And all the parents say, amen. Peace in our house, peace in our house in particular is attained when all the children are asleep. And then when me and Sarah are not arguing. So we may passingly refer to peace as when it's quiet in our house and no one's fighting, right? And we've been hearing about Jerusalem a lot this week. The city of peace. The people of Israel and the Palestinians both long for peace. And not just the cessation of fighting. That's not what these folks have in mind when they use the word peace. This is yet again another unfortunate translation issue from Hebrew to English. The English word peace has these connotations. No more fighting, stillness, quiet, right? The Hebrew word shalom and its Arabic cognate salam is much more full. Peace in the Old Testament is personal fulfillment. It's well-being, harmony, peace with God, like Jay mentioned earlier. And that is way more than just stillness or the stop fighting, right? The peace that the Messiah brings is peace with God. God and with others. The verb shalim, the verbal form of shalom, actually means to be whole, to be finished, to be fulfilled, to be complete. So a biblical peacemaker, as Jesus refers to as blessed, they're those who seek to fulfill, who seek wholeness, who seek the well-being of others. So the shalom of God is shalom with God and with creation. And this is what we deeply long for, all of us. Believer, non-believer alike, we all long for completeness, for wholeness. And that's accomplished through the Messiah, through Jesus, whose birth we celebrate. Let's examine a few other places in Scripture that remind us of the peace of God that's ours because of the Messiah. These are other places you might want to jot down, mark on your device, put your finger there in your physical Bible, but in Micah 5.2, another passage that we'll hear frequently during Advent because it's a prophecy. Micah says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. So Surely you see Jesus in that prophecy, right? The one from Bethlehem, the shepherd, and Jesus shall be peace. Jesus is our completeness, our wholeness, our well-being. He's the perfect Son of God, a man who exemplified what it actually means to be a human. Consider Luke 2.14. We'll be singing a part of this tonight with some angelic children's voices. But glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the angels sang this song, which is really kind of a function of soli Deo Gloria, one of the solas we just talked about. They sang Gloria in excelsis Deo from the Latin because God sent wholeness, God sent completeness to those who recognize Jesus as Messiah. From the shepherds who first heard that song to every person who has heard the gospel, there is well-being, there is health for those who believe. Now, let me clarify. for we get confused about what well-being and safety and wholeness, in this case, entail, it's not a completeness that's found in in material wealth or gain. The treasure itself is the child who was born. So again, let's look at Ephesians 2.14. It's always funny to me when, like, really related verses have the same number. I don't think there's anything to that, it's just funny. Uh, But in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We heard this verse during Grace Matters. We need to hear it daily. Jesus has broken down the dividing walls that humans love to erect, especially humans in positions of power. As God's children through Jesus Christ, were one. Because of what Jesus did in his incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection, those hostilities are eradicated. Jesus himself is our wholeness. And in John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The peace of God is ours because God himself, Jesus Christ, has given himself to us. He's given his peace to those of us who follow him. So again, think of it in terms of shalom. Wholeness I leave with you. My harmony with God I give to you. My completeness I give to you, not as the world gives, right? So right after explaining that he's leaving the Spirit to lead us in all truth, Jesus then says these words right here that we just read in John 14. Right there, plainly stated, the peace of God is ours because Jesus himself is our peace. God gave us a priceless gift in the Son of God in his birth that we celebrate. And God has continued to give himself Through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer, he has reconciled us. He's made us right with himself and with others. And he's making us holy and whole until Jesus' second advent. So what? Right? So what? I had a professor who would ask this at the end of every class. So we would have 40 minutes of lecture about whatever. And then he would say, so what? And if we wanted to provide an answer to this rhetorical question, uh, we had to have been paying attention, right? Because what he's lecturing about ultimately had a point or some use for us in in our ministry. This is a div school professor. So here's, here's the point. The fact that the peace of God is ours has a point. It's not just a fact that sits out there. It's a point. It has a thrust to it. There's much more for us to do with this in ministry. And remember that the role of the staff here at Grace Community Church the role that uh, Pastor Brad has as he preaches, uh, the job that the elders have as they shepherd is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's you. You are all called to be ministers. So there's a point here for your ministry. The peace of God is ours, so what? So that people in darkness will see light. One of the church fathers known as the Venerable Bede, said that Christ's peace is brought to fruition through the ministry of the church. Christ's peace, Christ's shalom that he's given to us is brought to fruition by the ministry of us. That's why we light the Advent wreath. That's why we light our individual candles from the Christ candle on Christmas Eve. The light has come into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. We light another candle each week of Advent to visibly remind ourselves that the darkness is pushed back. And his government will increase. His reign will be forever. We light our candles on Christmas Eve as we circle up to be reminded that the church is the body of Christ in the world until Jesus returns. We each bear his light into darkness. We best not hide under a bushel or behind our convenience. Or let the winds of culture cause us to flicker. The darkness cannot overcome his light. And his light, his peace, is ours. So that others will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So our peace, our wholeness is in Christ. The only true well-being and wholeness our world is gonna know is under the coming lordship of Jesus. And it's our privilege to proclaim that lordship already, even though it's not yet here. The church is an outpost of light, a beacon, both warning people of the danger of sin and illuminating the glory of the risen Christ. So because of the baby born to die, we have peace with God and peace in God. We have peace, shalom, wholeness, completeness with God. And in God. And this is our message to the world. Come all ye who are weary and heavy laden. And Jesus will give you rest. Come all who have fallen short. All who have sinned. And find peace. Wholeness. In Jesus. Would you stand as I pray? And continue to stand as we sing together. benediction. Good morning. Um, we're going to go into numbers for our benediction this morning. And it is a wonderful God has given us so many things. He's provided for us even in his word. He provided for Moses, excuse me, Moses to instruct Aaron how to bless the people so that God indeed could be blessed. And so in numbers we read, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance and give you shalom. Go in peace.